Welcome to the Health Seminar, a presentation of Airs LA, the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles, a service for the blind and reading impaired. Airs LA is proud to present the final half of a two-part seminar on retinitis pigmentosa recorded by the Braille Institute and titled, What Have You Done For Me Lately? The advice and discussion by prominent medical authorities continues. And uh, NNRI can do some things that the Foundation Fighting Blindness can't do, even though it is technically part of FFB. Uh, it can make deals with these companies. We can put money into them to help get the treatments going. And in return, we get some royalties, uh, intellectual property ownership, that sort of thing down the road. Uh, NNRI is also able to get funding from the federal government. In fact, we just got $5.2 million from the Department of Defense that's actually going to help uh, help us in running uh, the clinical trial uh, that we've started. Dr. Hopkins will talk about a trial with one of these neuroprotective factors uh, that's being uh, developed by a company called Neurotech. And some of this money is actually helping to uh, support the infrastructure in the various centers uh, that are going to be conducting the trial. And Dr. Hopkins with the Dr. Boyer right here in L.A. are actually going to be part of that trial and she'll talk to you more about that. So that's just one example. Um, so I thought what I would do actually would be to just give you a few examples of the opportunities of, uh, that uh, NNRI is faced with now, and, and uh, uh, basically these are opportunities that are leading us uh, closer to, to clinical treatments and trials. And uh, first of all, how many of you have heard of gene therapy, other than Dr. Hopkins just mentioning it? <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, essentially, as, as Dr. Hopkins mentioned, gene therapy is replacing a defective gene with uh, a gene that will hopefully take up the function of what the old gene was not doing. And I like to think of gene therapy in two simple forms um, and give you an example. Uh, gene therapy for most individuals, as, as was mentioned, most people have recessive uh, disease, 60 to 70 percent. And essentially what happens is you have two defective genes, as was mentioned, and you're either you're not making the protein or you're making a protein that's not working properly. So all you really need to do is to get a normal gene in there, make the protein, and hopefully the cell will be happy, the rods or cones will be happy and stay alive. Uh, it's much like a, a house with window air conditioning units. And actually, we just moved from Baltimore to Fort Lauderdale. We used to have window air conditioning units. And uh, if one doesn't work, you can actually stick, stick a new one in another window. You can leave the old one there. You don't have to pull it out, and the house will cool down. And that's essentially uh, a little bit of an analogy for recessive. In contrast, dominant disease, people that have dominant, what happens is you're making a protein that's toxic, that's killing the cell. So dominant uh uh, treating dominant disease with gene therapy is a little trickier. You have to actually knock out the defective gene. And although we are working on it, and, and I'll mention an example in a second. So uh, obviously one of the uh, one of the most outstanding advancements in the last uh, couple years was the uh, discovery uh, that gene therapy could actually help restore vision in a dog model. Uh, of a disease called Leber's congenital amaurosis, or LCA. Some of you may have heard about this already. This was 
published about four years ago in one of the uh, major scientific journals, Nature. And uh, interestingly, do- these, there's a, a strain of dogs called the Breard that have a genetic mutation that's virtually identical to humans with Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is actually considered as a, an early onset RP. Uh, children basically born with this go blind within a few years of life. Well, we're really excited now because hopefully in the next few months, three groups uh, from around the world will be two in the U.S. and one in Europe will be starting a clinical trial uh, using gene therapy uh, delivery of the gene that's involved in RP, the gene which is actually called RPE65, which is defective in Leber's congenital amaurosis. So um, let me just back up for a second and, uh, and say in, in terms of what is involved in gene therapy, essentially you're taking a normal gene, and actually they get the gene from a human donor, so it's a normal human gene that's been fully sequenced and found to be normal. That gene is put into a virus, and this virus is uh, genetically engineered. It doesn't cause disease, won't give you a cold, but these viruses are made so that they can actually, uh, are made to infect specific cell types. And the virus carrying the normal gene is injected, for most cases, beneath the retina. In between the retina and there's another cell type called the retinal pigment epithelium, a single cell layer that supports the retina. And like the rods and cones, and actually in the case of Leber's congenital amaurosis, defect in this gene causes the retinal pigment epithelial cells to die. So these uh, viruses are injected between uh, the photoreceptor cells and the RPA, and they're taken up specifically by the cell types. You can engineer viruses uh, to go specifically into rods and cones. You can change them a little bit so they'll only infect the retinal pigment epithelium. And uh, once the virus gets into the cell, basically the virus uncoats, and that gene basically, well, the virus makes it to the nucleus, and essentially that gene is expressed and the normal protein is made. And uh, in some cases, the virus may integrate into the individual chromosomes. These are called retroviruses, RNA viruses, like the AIDS virus. And in those cases, the gene therapy could be permanent. But in, in most of the other cases that are being looked at, they're using viruses that are only uh, temporary. They last for maybe one, maybe three years, five years possibly, and then you'd have to actually repeat the therapy. So uh, the first example that I mentioned of gene therapy that's being conducted is actually being developed by academic groups supported by the Foundation Fighting Blindness, University of Pennsylvania, University of Florida, and also uh, Moorfields Institute, University of London, are, uh, are conducting these gene therapies. But there are also uh, companies now that are beginning to get interested in this area. And again, I think gene therapy in the eye has a very good chance of working. First of all, you're not injecting this virus systemically. It doesn't go into the bloodstream. So you only need a small amount of virus. Secondly, when you inject into the eye, you can actually look into the eye, the uh, uh, Ophthalmologists can actually use an ophthalmoscope and look to see if there's something going, if there was something going wrong, you might be able to excise part of the retina. In a worst case scenario, you wouldn't want to think about it, but you could take the eye out. And uh, so for these reasons, I think uh, we are going to see some real successes with gene therapy for treating inherited retinal disease. Another reason why you should consider sending your blood off 
to uh, see if they can find the gene, because that would actually put you in queue for a future clinical trial for gene therapy. In these trials, um, no one would be admitted to these gene therapy trials unless the uh, genetic defect has been identified. So uh, it's a good push for getting your uh, genotype looked at, sending your, your blood off. Now, one of the companies that uh, um, we've been working with for a few years now is called Oxford Biomedica, and they're actually a British company, and they're actually developing a gene therapy treatment for two forms of macular degeneration. They're actually developing it for age-related macular degeneration of the wet form, which accounts for about 10% of, uh, of, ma- of the age-related macular degeneration. They're also developing a gene therapy for Stargardt disease, which is considered a juvenile macular degeneration. And I'm particularly interested in Stargardt disease because my wife actually has it. So I, I uh, know, know a lot about it, and, and uh, it's a, a, a very much of interest to me. What they've actually done is they've used a virus called a lentivirus, and this is an RNA virus that actually is able to integrate into the chromosome and would express the gene for the lifespan of the individual. And they've shown, uh, for the case of Stargardt disease, that they can put the Stargardt gene into this virus. And fortunately, we have animal models for these diseases. And there is a Stargardt mouse model that has uh, basically been created where they've knocked out the gene for Stargardt disease. It's called ABCA4. So they've knocked out the gene and created what's called a transgenic mouse model for Stargard. And scientists have shown that uh, if you inject the virus carrying the normal gene uh, beneath the retina in these mice, basically you can stop the production of a toxic protein that's produced in, the, in this uh, animal model. So I think it, within the last two weeks we've just had a news release of uh, a public announcement that the Foundation Fighting Blindness and NNRI is going to collaborate with Oxford Biomedica to develop a gene therapy treatment for Stargardt disease. As I mentioned, Oxford Biomedica is also developing a treatment for wet AMD, and they have uh, another gene, actually two genes, they're called endostatin and angiostatin. These genes make proteins that basically block uh, a growth factor that stimulates abnormal blood vessel growth in wet macular degeneration. And they basically put the two genes side by side into the virus, sort of a double whammy, to uh, uh, produce these uh, uh, angiostatic uh, blood vessel uh, growth blocking factors that will hopefully uh, uh, be developed into a treatment for wet AMD. And we already have evidence in a mouse model for wet AMD that they're effective. So as as I mentioned um, uh, earlier, in treating dominant disease, it's a little more complex because essentially individuals with dominant RP have one copy that's normal, and they also have one defective copy. And it's essentially that defective copy that you need to to block, the defective gene that you need to basically stop its uh, messenger RNA and stop the protein from being produced from this. And uh, fortunately, there's a company called Genable in Ireland that has developed a technology called siRNA, small interfering RNAs. And what, uh, what they're doing is they've actually put these siRNAs into a virus, and the virus then is injected beneath the retina. The virus gets into the cells, and these siRNAs are produced. 
the siRNAs are made specifically to target the mutant gene. And they actually, when the mutant gene starts producing uh, an abnormal copy, these siRNAs bind to it and basically block it from uh, making the defective protein, which is killing the cell. And uh, Genable was in Ireland. It was actually founded by one of our scientific advisory board members, Peter Humphrey. And they're just another example of a company moving forward to develop a treatment for retinitis pigmentosa. Another company that we're working with is called Copernicus. They're in Cleveland. And they've actually developed a non-viral uh, gene therapy uh, technology. Essentially, they found that you don't necessarily need a virus. Um, it's difficult in, uh, in moving uh, 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 treatments involving viruses through clinical trials. Um, these have to be regulated by the Food and Drug Administration and the National Institutes of Health and uh, because of possible hazards involved. At University of Pennsylvania a few years ago, there was a young man, uh, Jesse Gelsinger, was given a systemic administration of a virus, and his body had a huge immune response, and he ended up dying. So because of this, uh, there still is a lot of fear and trepidation about using viruses for gene therapy. But I think we're moving beyond that now. Nonetheless, Copernicus uh, has developed technology to compress DNA into a form that's stable, and actually they've, got, they've added a few uh, special ingredients that allows it to be taken up by cells and then move into the nucleus and be expressed. And uh, it's quite exciting. Actually, if any of you are interested, I have a copy of my uh, presentation. I'd be happy to email it to you. Um, there were actually, Copernicus is collaborating with one of our scientists, uh, Dr. Muna Nash at University of Oklahoma, and she's shown if you inject these little, what they're called nanoparticles of DNA, inject them beneath the retina, they're taken up specifically by rods and cones, and uh, essentially the gene is taken in and is expressed uh, by these cells. So even without a virus, uh, we're finding ways to uh, conduct gene therapy. Now, uh, the second area that I'd like to talk about is neuroprotection. And Dr. Hopkins will talk about uh, CNTF and Neurotech in a second. And I'll actually give you another example of a company that's developing a neuroprotective uh, uh, treatment. But essentially, neuroprotection involves the administration of a factor, either a natural protein or a small molecule, that's able to keep cells alive. And it's an area of very much of interest, not only to the foundation fighting blindness and uh, individuals interested in treating retinal disease, but also uh, neurodegeneration in general. Uh, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, ALS, uh, all of these diseases involve uh, neuronal cell death. And uh, researchers working on this area are actually looking for factors that they can give to, give to uh, uh, apply either uh, systemically or inject locally that will help keep these neurons alive. So essentially in the retina, uh, what we're doing is the same thing. And uh, I won't talk about CNTF, but I, I'll talk about another small molecule that, that uh, a company called SMG Therapeutics is looking to develop that was actually isolated from uh, the gallbladder of bears. This is very interesting. <laughs> it's been known for about <laughs> a thousand years in the Chinese pharmacopoeia that extracts of bear bile are very helpful for individuals with uh, neurodegeneration in general, uh, nervous diseases. 
And uh, a researcher at the University of Minnesota, Clifford Steer, got wind of this and thought, well, this might be useful for, he was actually working and he still is working on Huntington's disease, which is a fatal neurodegeneration involving the brain. And he actually has an animal model of Huntington disease, and he was able to get some of the bare bile extract and actually looked at it uh, as a biochemist. He wanted to know what components were important, and he isolated a bile salt called terso, terosodeoxycholic acid. You don't, you don't have to remember it. Terso is an easier name to remember. Essentially, he gave terso to these animals and was able to extend the lifespan of the animals and also reduce the level of damage in their brains. And uh, one of our researchers at Emory, Jeff Boatwright, uh, saw the publication that uh, Dr. Steer had published and contacted him and said, well, this might work for RP. And uh, Dr. Boatwright then applied for a grant from the Foundation Fighting Blindness, was funded, and uh, actually was able to show that by administering Terso to two different, right now, two mouse models of retinitis pigmentosa, and he's actually working on looking at several other models, that it was able to tremendously slow the, uh, the photoreceptor cell death in these RP animal models. And essentially what he's looking at now is different doses to see if uh, increasing the dose would, would be more effective. And also he's looking, because this drug has been given systemically, um, he's looking to see if you can give it locally, if, if that might not uh, uh, be a better route. Because remember, when you take drugs systemically, they affect uh, not only your eye, but all the organs in your body. And so the neat thing about the eye is that uh, there are a number of good drug delivery systems that are being developed now, the uh, Neurotech uh, encapsulated cell technology that Dr. Hopkins will be talking about in a minute is an example of one, but there are several others. So it's exciting that we, we might be able to deliver things locally, and there's some advantages there. Now, another company that we're working with is called Sirion. Sirion uh, is developing a drug to treat Stargardt disease. Interestingly, in Stargardt disease, um, what happens is the byproduct of uh, rhodopsin breakdown. Rhodopsin is the light-sensitive molecule in your rod cells that basically responds to light and turns a photon of light into an electrochemical signal sent back to your brain. Well, rhodopsin is made up of the protein opsin and vitamin A. And after light hits it, it breaks down. And the vitamin A comes off. And actually, the vitamin A that actually breaks off forms a, a toxic uh, metabolite, as I mentioned earlier. And what happens, every night when you go to sleep, the very tips of your rods and cones are chewed off by that cell layer that I mentioned, the retinal pigment epithelium. It's like a little Pac-Man that chews off the tips. Now, what happens in Stargardt disease is the gene, the ABC4 ATP binding cassette, it's actually a transporter protein, it transports the toxic molecule out of the cells. But in Stargardt disease, that toxic metabolite stays in the photoreceptor cells, and when they're chewed off, it poisons the retinal pigment epithelium. And then what happens is this cell dies, and once the RPE cell dies, what happens is then the cones in the macula actually die uh, quite quickly afterwards. They're dependent on each other. The RPE is a very important cell type. It helps to support the health of the retina, 
uh, nutrients, oxygen, and actually vitamin A from the circulation come through the retinal pigment epithelium and are transferred to your photoreceptor cells. And when the RPE cells die, photoreceptors uh, follow quite quickly. Well, the interesting thing is that it turns out that patients, certain patients, not everyone, but it looks as though some individuals with the dry form of age-related macular degeneration also have a buildup of this toxic metabolite. It's called A2E, if you're interested. So the light bulb has sort of gone on in the big pharmaceutical companies now. We actually have a half a dozen companies, including GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer and other major companies, are now looking uh, to develop a treatment uh, for dry AMD by blocking the production of this toxic metabolite. And uh, Sirion was actually uh, just recently formed, uh, actually uh, uh, acquired another company called Cytera. These companies change a lot. Um, they lose funding, and other companies buy them out, and, and it's hard to keep track of them sometime. But uh, Sirion uh, is uh, actually hoping to start a clinical trial for, for dry AMD, not Stargardt disease, uh, by the end of this year or early in 2007. And we're actually working with them to hope, hopefully persuade them to consider a, a trial for Stargardt disease as well. Actually, I'm meeting uh, just after here. I'm flying up to Seattle to meet with another company, Acucella, which is also developing a similar drug for Stargardt uh, and dry AMD. So, um, again, just a couple examples of, of neuroprotective therapies. Finally, I'd like to mention the, uh, the third area of treating um, uh, with cell-based therapies. Now, cell-based therapies uh, actually fall into two classes. Um, cell-based therapies could include things such as putting in Schwann cells, supportive cells, stem cells, retinal pigment epithelial cells, and using these cells as living drug delivery devices, and actually uh, the Neurotech uh, encapsulated cell technology actually uses a cell within the capsule. But uh, the other side of cell-based therapy is the hope that we could get stem cells uh, to turn into photoreceptor cells. And stem cells, as you know, are cells that have the potential to differentiate into any cell type in the body, fat cells, bone cells, muscle cells. Well, scientists have been looking at stem cells for treating Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS, a number of different diseases, cancer. They're also very interested to uh, look at these cells for treating retinitis pigmentosa as well. And the Foundation Fighting Blindness is funding a consortium. And... Uh, just um, two days ago, there was a paper published in Nature that uh, showed that a certain stem cell derived from the retina, it's published by uh, several of our researchers, Anand Swaroop at Michigan, Robin Alley at London, showed that they could isolate a cell that actually had a, uh, a marker on it. They were able to use antibodies to identify this cell type with a specific marker called, called NRL. They took this cell type and put it into the retina of another animal and found out that the cell could actually differentiate into a photoreceptor cell. This is really shocking news. For the first time, uh, a group has shown that stem cells can differentiate into real photoreceptor-like looking cells. And photoreceptor cells are unique-looking cells. They're not round. They're rod-shaped, as the name implies, or slightly cone-shaped. And they have an outer segment that consists of uh, 
uh, stack of pancake discs uh, that are loaded with rhodopsin. It's a very unique morphology. In the past couple years, scientists uh, have talked about producing photoreceptor cells from stem cells, but no one had actually shown that uh, you could produce a cell that looked like a photoreceptor cell. And now it, it looks as though we, we, we have uh, uh, found an answer. So it's going to be exciting to see where that goes. The group at present is, uh, is academic, but I'm actually trying to contact them to see if uh, they're working with a company or considering starting a company to use this uh, finding to, uh, to advance the field. There's another company that we're working with um, called Centacore, and Centacore has actually filed for orphan drug status for a stem cell treatment for retinitis pigmentosa. Now, orphan drug status is something that the uh, FDA actually can uh, award a company if for, for treating individuals where the disease is less than 100,000 individuals. And if a company receives orphan drug status, essentially they get seven years market exclusivity. That's seven years where they can sell their product and no other company can make a competing product. They also get to write off half the cost of the clinical trial. And there's some other benefits, some grants, and actually the uh, FDA looks very favorably on uh, orphan drug status and actually works with companies to help them accelerate the development of treatments. Well, it's exciting that uh, Centacore, which is actually a Johnson & Johnson company, um, is actually developing a stem cell line that's derived from umbilical cord. So you can get stem cells from embryonic tissue from fertility clinics. You don't necessarily need to do that. They Essentially, when babies are born, they throw the placenta and umbilical cord away. And the Centacore scientists have found a way to basically isolate one, uh, one line of stem cells from umbilical cord, and they've grown these up, propagated them, characterized them. And actually, one of our scientists at University of Utah, Ray Lund, has shown that when you put these stem cells beneath the retina in a, a rat model of retinitis pigmentosa, you can slow photoreceptor cell death. Uh, we don't know yet if these cells turn into photoreceptor cells, like the, the academic group, but I think that's essentially where they're going. So I think at this point I'll just wind, wind up, and uh, thank you for your time. There's other companies. I can give you examples of it. Thank you. Great. I want to thank Tim very much for that outstanding presentation. And just for all of us sitting here, I mean, I think it, it is a bit mind-boggling to hear the potentials that are on the immediate horizon. I mean, these are so many areas, so many different researchers around the world making, I think, significant headway toward bringing um, these therapies to, to human trials, which is really exciting. So thank him for an excellent, uh, very comprehensive overview there. Um, I'll talk a bit then about these neuronal survival factors in neurotech, as Tim alluded to. This is a company that's developed a very elegant technology called encapsulated cell technology. They basically have developed a, a little pellet. It's about the size of a pencil lead that can be put inside the eye. And inside that little pellet are RPE cells, which have been genetically engineered to secrete a growth factor. The particular growth factor is called ciliary neurotrophic factor, or CNTF. Um, and that has been studied extensively over 13 different models of retinal degeneration, again, in animals, um, across genetic subtype, across species. This growth factor was found to um, actually restore cellular components. So that was very, very exciting. 
the animal research always has to come first. The FDA does not let you go forward to any clinical trials in human beings without safety um, and efficacy data in an animal model. So that's why we, you hear so much about the pre-animal um, testing that does go on. But because the CNTF animal studies were so... Um, um, exciting looking in so many animal models. They did allow um, the phase one trial for CNTF to be developed. And the first uh, trial was performed at the National Eye Institute by Dr. Paul Sieving, who is the head of the NEI and an outstanding retinal degeneration specialist. And they put the CNTF implant in 10 patients with very advanced RP. So most of those patients were patients who had had the disease for many, many years and had progressed to a stage where both peripheral and central vision was affected, quite severely affected. And in those 10 patients, it was designed as a safety study. So they basically said, if we put this pellet in humans, what happens? Do we see retinal detachment? Do we develop other problems we weren't expecting to see? In fact, no, the safety profile was absolutely outstanding. No major safety complications in any of the 10 eyes that were treated. So the safety data was unequivocally good. As a pleasant aside, of course, they also looked at visual acuity and said, did anyone happen to get better? And yes, in fact, they did. Most of the eyes in the higher dose showed some increase in vision. In three of the 10 eyes that were treated, dramatic increases in vision, equivalent of two or three lines on the chart. And again, these were eyes that were quite advanced. So one gentleman in particular who had what we call hand motion vision, which is where he was able to see form vision, he was reading 15 to 20 letters on the chart the course of the study. So again, amazing. I mean, in a condition where we have never had anything to improve the situation, very exciting. So based on this excellent phase one response, we're now heading into the phase two, three trial. And I'll just spend a moment talking about that because phase one is basically saying, is this safe? Do we get any side effects that we don't want to see? Phase two and three are when we look at actually um, saying, does this device make a difference? Can we take this data to the FDA at the end of the clinical trial and get it approved for widespread use in people with these conditions? So neuronal survival, we're excited because, again, it works across genetic subtype. And although gene therapy is that holy grail we hope will cure these diseases, it's a longer process, as you're hearing, to find the gene, to find the product. It's a bit more of a needle in a haystack to get everybody's genetic disease worked out. These factors, though, work across genetic subtypes, so it gives it a widespread um, availability. So we're now about to commence two phase two, three trials. Um, we will be a site here in Los Angeles uh, at Retina Vitreous Associates, and there are multiple sites uh, around the country as well, I think about eight in total. What we are looking at doing, there are going to be two major trials for RP. One is the visual acuity trial, where we're putting this implant in the eye and we're asking the question, does CNTF improve central vision? Okay. Then we have a visual field arm saying, putting the implant in the eye, does it improve the visual field function? In any clinical trial, the criteria that any company or investigator is going to set out are very stringently defined. And there's a reason for that. Again, that ultimate, when you present this data to the FDA, you want to be confident that everybody had the same disease, the same level of disease. And in these studies, we're looking uh, to enroll eyes that are somewhat evenly matched because the eye that we don't treat is going to serve as what we call the control eye. And that becomes a statistically very important thing. If we have an eye that we treat and show effectiveness, we have the fellow eye that was not treated and did not change over the course of the study, 
that allows us to have much more statistical power, actually needing fewer patients. The frustration, though, when if you come to see us and say, well, I fit in for this trial, is that there are these criteria. Some people do fit, some don't, and that can be frustrating. But the important thing to know is that we're, this is still a, a pioneer-type trial saying, does this device work? The study is set up so that we hope to have that answer within about two years. And if we then say, yes, we had good effectiveness, we'll look at implanting that in eyes that are outside that stringent criteria. So that's important. No clinical trial goes ahead without the people sitting in the room, the people who are willing to go ahead and do this. And it's easy for us to stand up and say, well, the rat's retinas look terrific. It's a whole different thing entering into this trial with our patients, going forward together, excited, hopeful, but also concerned. We learn as we go. And some, as as Tim, you know, very eloquently discussed, sometimes trials have effects that we don't want to see. Um, the nice thing about this pellet as well is that it can be removed very easily from the eye. And as part of the trial, it will in fact be removed. So the plan is to have it in the eye for either six months or a year, depending which arm of the trial you're in. And then we follow you for an additional year. Interestingly, in the phase one studies, the people that had the improvement maintained that improvement even when the implant was taken out of the eye. So again, we think we may be seeing an upregulation, an improvement of that environment, giving the cells, you know, stopping that cycle of cell degeneration. So we're very, very excited to be a part of this, and uh, I hope that many of you will come and uh, seek out, if interested, uh, whether or not that would be something you would uh, be interested or eligible. But we'll keep updating on that. Um, the Foundation Fighting Blindness, they have a wonderful website. Um, I'm sure they have it out there, but it's www.blindness.org. And uh, they have regular updates on the trials, the centers doing them, and where they're at. Um, the next major area of um, treatment in RP are the implantation ideas, the the prosthesis or um, chips, as they're sometimes called. And this has been developed uh, extensively by Second Sight Medical Products and Dr. Mark Humayan, who's at University of Southern California. And this prosthesis basically works. It's very similar to the cochlear implant that's gained such success in deafness. But you're basically saying those sensory cells, the rods and cones that can't work anymore, if we bypass that, if we implant or replace their function, with a chip, can we then stimulate vision? And we're very fortunate uh, this morning to have um, Grant Palmer, who's the Director of Clinical Affairs at Second Sight Medical Products. Uh, I had the distinct pleasure of working with Grant uh, very closely uh, in my time at Doheny Retina Institute, and I'm delighted to introduce him uh, to discuss um, the retinal prosthesis project and where that stands now. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. As Jill said, I'm the Director of Clinical Affairs for Second Sight. I'm the one responsible for running these clinical trials, uh, helping physicians recruit patients to come in to be one of the brave ones to walk up and have one of these devices. And what I want to share with you today is some of the background, where we are, tell you some of the stories from some of the patients, and where we're going in the future, uh, because we're continuing to develop. In February of 2002, a very brave man submitted himself to be implanted. He didn't know if it would work. We didn't know if it would work. Um, there had been lots of 
acute experiments in patients with single electrodes stimulating their nerve cells. Yes, they saw a light. We didn't know whether a permanent electrode implant on the retina would work. A few weeks later, the device was turned on. He saw something. Now, the device is 16 platinum electrodes. The whole thing is less than a quarter of an inch across. If you can imagine a jumbotron at a football game, or if you've ever done what our mothers told us not to do and sat too close to the television, you see all those little dots. He had four dots across, four dots high. That's all he has. There's a cable that runs out of his eye to an electronics package, and then that communicates with a camera that he wears over the bridge of his nose in a pair of glasses. He was joined over the next two years by six others, all with retinitis pigmentosa. Why RP? RP, for our purposes, is a very, very simple disease. It's very well understood in its progression, and it doesn't come with associated other problems like glaucoma has has other issues, uh, macular degeneration can suddenly become wet, and we're putting an implant in, into the eye. So for us, it's very, very simple. All six subjects are continuing to do very, very well. Um, every one of them saw what we call phosphenes. Um, we call them phosphenes because it's a complex technical term and we like to be smart. But it's a way of saying they saw light without the connotation of they saw light with their natural eye. They're continuing to come in. Uh, these patients are under clinical study. Um, and for anybody who would want to consider being into clinical study, my hat is off to you. Um, these patients are coming in once or twice a week, uh, these initial ones, for about four hours at a time. In addition to seeing whether the device works, there are a lot of different uh, computer technologies and strategies that we can learn about in testing these patients to try and make them better. We can stimulate differently, we can do different patterns, we can do things at different times, and this helps us learn and makes the future products better. We've already learned an extraordinary amount. Now, the question I get asked a lot, what can they see and what can't they see? Okay. They can't watch television. They can see the lights flickering on the television, but uh, to all intents and purposes, they, cannot, they, can't, they can't do that. They can't recognize faces. Uh, they can see where you are, they can see your outline, but they, but they won't be able to recognize faces, not with the, with the implants as they are now. And they can't read. What can they do? And I decided to pull some of their own words. In the car, I could sometimes see lights on the houses and on the corner, like gas stations that were real bright. It would light up. If it wasn't a bright shopping centre, I would just get a dark circle. I could see the traffic lights. It would light up. 
That's from one of our subjects. She's a very active grandmother. From another subject, I'm at the Braille Club in Riverside, a place I go to every Tuesday. I've got my camera and glasses and really enjoying myself being able to look at people's faces and see them light up and be able to tell them what kind of clothes they're wearing and whether it's dark or light. I'm also able to look around at the windows. I was able to count the windows, eight in one row on one side of the room. Somebody was there that was sighted that could tell me whether I was right or not. And I was. So they can do simple things. They can tell where the edge of a path is. They can find the edge of a doorway. Simple mobility, as one of our subjects told a a news reporter, it may not seem much, but it's a lot for someone who's blind. Uh, All of these patients were essentially no light perception or very, very bare light perception. Uh, They were right down at the bottom end. Partly because the array is so simple, the amount of vision that a lot of of you in this room would have and people you know is at the present stage far better than we could ever give you with with the device, Um, but also to reduce the risk of, of damaging any residual vision. They've done far better than we could ever have hoped. Jill has um, met all of them. In the future, what are we going to do? Bigger and better arrays. We're currently developing an array that will have approximately 60 electrodes. That's four times as many. It will still probably not allow patients to read. And any facial recognition would be... Maybe you could tell somebody had a beard rather than was was clean-faced. But the next device will be a lot smaller. It will be simpler to implant. And we will probably be doing a clinical study for that next year. Again, patients who come in, if anybody wants to uh, be brave and volunteer, we will be asking them to come in fairly often. You'll be helping us... Uh, develop prosthesis that won't necessarily help uh, the current generation but will help future generations. It will take these these steps. It will take more people to step forward. So we're going to be looking for RP uh, again. We're going to be looking for patients who are over 50. We want patients who are... Uh, old enough so that their disease is advanced enough um, that they are down to bare light perception or no light perception. And we also want to take... We don't want to implant patients who are too young because of the stem cell technologies and the uh, other cell therapies that are are coming up. Uh, We don't know where this is going to lead. It may be suitable for some patients and and not others. Um, and it may just complement these other therapies. Um, the patients we will enrol in the LA area will probably be from you know, Orange County, LA County, Western San Bernardino County, Eastern Ventura, 
close in. Um, it's a very big commitment. It's a very large commitment. And it's very exciting. I get to see these patients quite regularly. Without them, we wouldn't have got where we are. And we're learning a lot. And hopefully within the next five to ten years, we will have arrays that are 32 by 32, a 1,000 electrodes, one step at a time. Thanks. For more information about Braille Institute, call 1-800-BRAILLE. That's 1-800-272-4553. I hope you've benefited from this podcast brought to you by the efforts of the Braille Institute and the Audio Internet Reading Service of Los Angeles. We welcome your comments and requests and can be reached by email at info at airsla.org or by following links on our website at airsla.org.